Hello everybody, I'm Paul Gilroy, Director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at UCL. My guest today is Dennis Matumbi Bovell, the artist formerly known as Blackbird, now recognised as the reggae maestro. Dennis is a producer, a composer, multi-instrumentalist, sound engineer, innovator and bass man, lord of the lowest frequencies, king of that dark continent located below 35 hertz. He's known and appreciated for his film soundtracks, most notably Franco Rosso's landmark picture Babylon, which dramatised elements of Dennis' own biography, and of course for his many decades of work as the musical director for Linton Quasi Johnson's touring band. Dennis has worked with really, really the who's who of reggae music, Michael Prophet, Max Romeo, Steel Pulse, Lee Perry, and many, 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 many others, with Viola Wills, with Fela Kuti, Sharon Shannon, Jean Bintabriz, Ryuchi Sakamoto, the Tokyo Scar Paradise Orchestra, and in the world of pop with Orange Juice, The Slits, Madness, and Bananarama. For five decades, the man who wrote the national anthem of Black Britain, Silly Games, has been astonishing us with his creative accomplishments inside reggae music and beyond it, in this country as well as in the wider world, across Europe, in Africa with Alpha Blondie, and many others in Japan, where Lovers Rock has another life, and of course in Latin America, where Dennis's work is known and appreciated, especially in Brazil and in Argentina. A list of Dennis' many musical accomplishments really would use up all the time that we have available for us today, so I won't go into that any more deeply, but thank you, Dennis, for making the time and space to have this conversation with me, and welcome. We're delighted to have you here. I don't know where to begin, Dennis, because obviously to sum up your career is not the point of this. When I think of you as a master of music, I think of it across all fields of music. Maybe the place to start is what boundaries? Do you have any musical boundaries at all? Not at all. No, I think you can go wherever you like in music. And stemming from the days as a young boy accompanying my grandfather to choir practice, and hearing the choir being put through its spaces and seeing how the different harmonic bits came together and then attempting to create pieces of my own where I was linking A, B and C sections or return to the A, only go to the B once. For instance, today I was meditating on silly games and there is one part that goes da 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 only one time in the song <laughs> and it's like at the end of the first verse and at the end of the second verse I go somewhere else you know that's the joy for me kind of trying to remember my grandfather putting the hallelujah chorus together you know with lay people really they were just church members who he delighted in enlightening them about music. And of course, my mom, being his eldest daughter, she was in the choir. So I accompanied them every Wednesday night to choir practice and then ended up actually looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I know that you've been obviously working with Steve McQueen on his small acts thing. One of the things that's striking about the music in that, in the ones I've seen so far anyway, is the presence of country music in the West Indian, as it was, in the West yeah. Indian home. And That's was, nothing new. <laughs> well, no, it isn't anything new, but it's also something that, and you know from your life as a producer and musician in West Africa too, 
that the high lonesome sound, that sort of singing melancholy sound is very, very appealing among Caribbean people and African people too. But it seems to break the rules of how so many people think about culture and music these days, because you're going somewhere you're not supposed to go, but it finds you anyway. How do you feel about that? You know, because I know you've worked with Irish musicians in the past. You've worked in all forms, really. Yes. In fact, I've just turned in a rhythm track to Sharon Shannon. She sent me a piece of accordion and said, look, this is a piece called Mercine Dorkin. And it was a hit in the 60s in Ireland. It was a great protest song about going to America to dig for pots of gold instead of digging potatoes in Ireland. You know, and it was quite a hit. I never heard it before until she pointed it out to me and sent me her accordion version, whereupon I set the band up and she was quite intrigued that I've got the same amount of musicians around me and the same people around me as I did when we did her album in 2004 or something. That album was called Out the Gap. Then she said, and I wonder if you could ask Linton to do a voiceover. And you know, that's the most difficult thing to do. Get Linton to do what? Voiceover and you're a poet. But I'll put it to him anyway, so that he doesn't hear, oh, we asked Dennis to hear. <laughs> so I said, I tell you what, Sharon, send him an email. And I was in the studio with him, you know, in days, because we've been doing this project for about 20 years, where he calls his labor of love, you know. And I said, Linton, uh, Sharon sent through a request for you to do something. And he went, yeah, yeah, she did. And I tell you what I'll do. I'll do a like for like. And I said, oh, come on in, Linton. He said, I will do a poem on her piece of music if she then plays accordion on this album that we've been making for the last however long. And uh, he's pointed out what song it would be to have her do an accordion. And I agreed. And I said, all right. And so I said, there you go. Linton did the voice and then she did the accordion. Well, that's extremely interesting, actually. And the reason I wanted to talk about that a little bit, I don't know if you're a Jim Reeves fan. I'm not really, actually. I've never... <laughs> I love country music, but Jim Reeves... My granddad was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've come across in my own life in the last sort of year or so, a lot of young black people in this country who have got no boundaries with regard to the music that they love and the music they want to make. They're as comfortable with grime, they're as comfortable with a computer as they are thinking about English folk music and traditions of musicking that people don't assign to black history. And I always thought that was a terrible mistake because there are figures in this country, people like, you know, I don't know, Davy Graham, you must have come across him, or Nadia Katus, or even Doris Henderson, you know, who were making folk music in the 60s and 70s, mm. and not just making English folk music, but making music from every quarter of the world and folding it back into a much more... I guess, I don't want to call it folky, but it would be, I mean, isn't it Louis Armstrong says, you know, it's all folk music. Have you ever seen a horse making music? No, it's all folk that make the music. That's right. He uses that category to encompass everything. Yeah, oh, I'm a great Louis Armstrong fan. I mean, I've done an acapella version of Wonderful World and uh, people keep saying to me, put it out, put it out. I maybe will soon with my rendition of Ave Maria melody, where I've changed the words. And it's now called Mama Maria. And it goes, Mama Maria, with reverence we call thy name. Oh, hear us, we beseech thee in our quest for peace, love, and unity. Grant us the power to stand firm 
in our hopes and beliefs. Thy Son, proclaimed the Savior, gave his life for humanity. Oh, hear us, we beseech thee. You know, like that, it's like a prayer to Mary to heal the world. And in English, because nobody knows what the Latin of that is. Yeah. <laughs> says. I mean, I always felt that Rico's incredible version of Danny Boy was something that could be positioned yeah. in remarkable hit, sort of alternative history of life in this country during the 50s and 60s. You know, it sort of stands out in my mind as a marker of all of that. I once did a version with him of the kinks, You Got Me Going. And he sang. When I go through my collection, I'm going to find that because we did a piece called Children of Sanchez. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Chuck Mangione. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Rico was so in love with that piece of music that we had to do it. He had to do it. And then for the B-side, I said, what about doing this Kinks record? <laughs> and he really liked the tune and got right into it and did a vocal and the trombone version of it. I know you work very closely with him in lots of different contexts over the years, you know. I feel that he's not sufficiently honoured as an ancestor, as a creative person who opens up incredible perspectives, particularly in the interfacing of Caribbean music with R&B, actually. And if you listen to those old records that he made with Dandy Livingstone in the beginning, nobody even knows Dandy Livingstone's name. What was your first encounter with him? With Dandy Livingstone? Yeah. Well, I was given the opportunity to have my own record label at EMI in the 80s. Or was it the 70s? End of the 70s, 80s. And the first artist I released on my label was Dandy Livingstone, a tune called Instant Hit. And I found copies of it the other day. And we also did a version of Fever. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Dandy, the funny thing is that links us together is John Kapai. Because John played guitar in a band called the In Brackets. And that was Dandy's backing band back in the day, you know, Susan Beware of the Devil and all that. John Kapai was a guitar player. I see. That's remarkable. For my sins, I lost my copy of the original Ijaman Levi version of Jack. I've lost yeah. my copy that I've been searching for. And I looked online, as you do, to see where I could get another copy of it. And the cost of a seven inch of that record was £200. What? I just thought to myself, that's, you didn't produce that one, did you? No, I mean, no, that was, that was all John Kapai's work. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was his guitar sound, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. That was John right through, because the thing was that we worked for Dennis Harris, who was affectionately known as Dip. But, you know, how people, our people, can bastardise things. It was actually DLP, because his name was Dennis Lascelles Harris, right? And he has DL production. So it was DLP when he used to do bus excursions. I mean, when Matumbi met him, we were booked to play on a bus excursion that went to North Wales. And uh, <laughs> we thought, oh, it's Wales. Good, we'll go down Bristol and we'll get there, right? So we drove down to Bristol only to find that we had to drive the length of Wales up and down hills, mountains and valleys. And of course, the van, not being a very new one, <laughs> gave way. Luckily, we had a mechanic with us who sort of botched up and we got to the gig a bit late mm. and embarrassed. We did the gig and left without collecting our money. 
<laughs> and uh, about a week or two later, he phoned me up and said, don't you want your money? Although I shouldn't pay it to you because you turned up late, but you're playing all right. And then, you know, I made a friend of him. And then when he had some success with Susan Cadogan, hurt so good because he was involved with that. Scratch Perry and him were very good friends. In fact, Lee Scratch Perry told me that it was him who gave him the equipment to build his first recording studio. And he relayed that to me in front of his son from Ladbroke Grove, Peter, Peter Harris, who had never had much contact with his dad. And then when Lee Perry said to him, oh, how's your dad? Then we had to say, oh, he's passed away. And then Lee Perry started to tell him about his dad and how he was a man of his word. You know, so that man said to me once, he said, Dennis, you're a good bass player, but your guitar playing's not up to much. I went, what do you mean? I'm a guitarist, so I just double on bass. He went, no, no, no. I'm going to bring you a guitar player, and quote, who's going to wipe the floor with you. Right? And I was like, challenge, bring him. And then he brought this young man. And the man plugged in the guitar and started to play, and it was John Kapai, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to be this good. So I said, John, I tell you what, let's make a pact, right? You play guitar, I'll play bass. And we've done that ever since 1975. Mm -hmm. And after Linton's first album, when I bring guitar, keyboard, you know, bass, sometimes sound engineer, I said, Linton, I can't do it all. We need a guitar player. And I'm going to bring a guitar player to the scene you in is he better than you? And I went, you'll see. And when he plugged in, Linton looked at me and he went, he's better than you. Right? And ever since that, he's been, you know, a member of the camp. Right. So were you aware of the Cats when the Cats had that hit with Swan Lake in 68? Because that was John. That was the best thing I knew of him. That must have been the first record to get in the charts that was produced. To well, no, because my boy Lollipop had picked oh, it to the post. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I don't, I don't know why I don't count that. I know it's not true that Rod Stewart played the harmonica on there, but right. there's something about that in my mind that means I put it in a slightly different category. But yeah. It was produced by Ernest Wranglin. Right. And probably most of the players from Byron Lee, Dragoneers. Certainly that horn section. Mm -hmm. ba, ba, you know, yeah, that was, if you want to say, the first piece of Caribbean music recorded in England that made it to the top of the charts. Swan Lake and all that made it to the bottom ring, but it made it in there anyway. So that was something to celebrate, that it actually got in there. John says that he played the guitar and the organ, because he was playing a guitar and then playing a few bits on the organ, and it was amazing, you know. But John's a multi-instrumentalist, of course, you know. Yes. And when he was brought on to the production team at DIP, DIP was involved with trying to find new vehicles for letting the music out. And he thought that to flood the market was the answer, you know. So you get yourself about 10 different labels, as they did in Jamaica, and you just put stuff out. Nobody knows if it's your label or it's another label. And that kind of discounts the prejudice of whether or not you subscribed to that person's record company because you didn't like their ethics or whatever. Then you suddenly find, hey, I just bought a record and it was him that did it again. And it's on a new label. I didn't expect it to be on that label. And we kind of took that attitude with making records in England yeah. because we were always being ridiculed. Ah, that was made in London. Don't want to hear it. You know. I remember as a consumer, if I can call myself that, 
going into the record shop and seeing the records that you were putting out on white labels mm. or with the center punched out that's right uh, to make them look as though they were pre-release records coming into the country from jamaica yeah. and actually i have to say although a lot of people were fooled by that i didn't know it was you doing it but i did wonder who was doing it because it was obvious that they weren't wasn't obvious, but it was, if you listen, you hear it it's a Jamaican record. So that was a bit interesting to me that you had to do that, actually, mm. because, you know, there's a bit of a romantic story that gets told about the music that all the local people love the music in the same way that Jamaicans do and blah, 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 blah. And actually a lot of artists, a lot of musicians here couldn't really support themselves from their own creativity. I mean, I know that I've talked to you before about the fact that Matumbi served as a backing group for touring Jamaican artists and therefore, mm. in a way, perfected the ability to sound like a Jamaican band. Yeah, we had to learn it lick for lick. I remember Dennis Brown once coming over and saying, all right, we've got a gig. And he didn't turn up to the rehearsal until about 10 minutes before the end. And I was like, D. Brown. What, what happened? He goes, ah, don't worry, listen, play me um, one, two, play Money in the Pocket. And we go, start it, we go, yeah, play um, Wolves and Leopards. Play, uh, and then he goes, ah, you're all right, I'll see you at the gig tomorrow. <laughs> he didn't sing a note at the rehearsal. And we took that to mean, well, you know, we've passed the test. But it was very flamboyant. I was like, you're all right, you can play. And it boosted our confidence a lot that Dennis Brown didn't even bother to turn up because he was confident that we were going to supply the goods. Well, yeah, I mean, there's also that spontaneity is so precious. It's such a precious and special part of the way that the music works that you're really improvising something, you know. Yeah, it was the same with Leroy Smart. Leroy Smart turned up at the tail end of a recording session one evening in Gooseberry and said, hey, Bovell, I want to do an album with you. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, when? You know, we could sort it out. He's going, how about now? And I was like, uh-uh. So I say to the musicians, Leroy wants to do some recording. Are you lot up for it? And this is Jabani, Junko Pie, myself, and Noel Salmon, keyboard player. We used to call him Fish. And they went, yeah. And he pulled out a big wad of notes. I went, I've got money. And so the musicians were like, okay, it's three o'clock in the morning, but we can do something. And we said, what should we play? And he said, you lot are musicians. You play what you like. I'm a singer. I'm going to sing. You play. Right? And it was the strangest thing because it, it felt as though, you know, we could play anything and he would sing along to it. So I took that as a sign to create some, you know, nice two chord rhythms and then a little bridge part there. And, then, and it was quite easy. And by the time we'd made nine backing tracks, I thought, hang on a minute, your name is Leroy Smart. You're very smart. You've got us to write music for you and all you're going to do, and you're going to claim that it's you, right? So I said, no, it stops right here now. And he said, well, you can't do nine songs for an album. You've got to do 10 and it's five aside. So in a moment of quick thinking, I said, and I rewinded one of the tracks and said, you see this track? Sing two different songs on it. Right, And he went, yeah, great idea. And I think that's probably the beginning of people singing songs that didn't relate to the chord structures. <laughs> and we did that album, and it was called Propaganda. And as soon as we finished the rhythm track, he would have the lyrics. And if I said to him, Leroy, a bit out of tune there, he goes, ah, no, 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 next track. And we did the whole album in an evening from conception to mix 
to the next morning being mastered at John Hassel's studio and being released by Burning Sounds, where he's put John Kapai's name as Gitz Matumbi. <laughs> he can spell Kapai. <laughs> I mean, that is extraordinary. So how did you get from Broccoli, from Dip and Eve and Lucky and Dennis Harris, how did you get to Gooseberry? Well, the thing was that Nick Straker and myself had written a song one afternoon and wanted to record it immediately. That song was called Come With Me. And we looked through the yellow pages for a studio and found one called Gooseberry in Gerrard Street in the West End that was able to accommodate us right there and then. So we got on the number 19 bus and went down there. And the guy said, where's the band? And I said, well, we are the band. And I played the drums. And Nick played the keyboard, and I put the bass, and he played another keyboard. And then I put the guitars on, and then did the vocals. And the guy whose studio it was was amazed. A black kid and a white kid came in and did this reggae tune, you know. And he was liking reggae himself. So at the end of the session, when I took the tape home and put it on my own tape recorder, it was distorted. The mix was distorted. So I went boldly back to him and said, look, this mix is distorted. I need to get a clean mix of this and you need to give me some more time at your expense because it's your studio and it's your distortion. And he went, mm, okay, come in. And I went in, we remixed the song. And after remixing it and being satisfied that it wasn't distorted, he said, I've been dabbling in poetry and I'd quite like to do some reggae with my poetry. Are you up for it? So I said, yeah. And then one day, some weeks later, he turned up at my house to say, look, there's some downtime in the studio. Will you come with me now? And I was living at Battersea Bridge at the time. And then we drove in to the West End, went into the studio, and then I started to make some tracks for him. And then I said, you know what? It might be better if I involved the drummer of my band so that whilst he's playing drums, I can play bass. You know, if I have to play the drums first and then lay the stuff on, it's a bit more difficult than if I had a drummer. So he said, OK, we'll bring a drummer down. And I brought Newton Jones, who was the drummer of Matumbi at the time, down with me and Bevin Fagan, the singer, because we were the three musketeers. We hung out together everywhere. And we went down there and we started to lay down some tracks to help Peter with his poetry. And he was going to be called Peter Poet, right? And this was the first time that he'd let anyone of our kind into his studio. And so as time went on and I became friends with him from doing that, then Lloyd Coxon wanted to record Louis Mark. So instead of recording a dip where we had an eight track, but it wasn't as professional sounding as Gooseberry. So I said, well, let's do it at Gooseberry. We went down and did it at Gooseberry. And the success of that song was so phenomenal that Peter said to me, how would you like to do some engineering here? Because there was a guy, Mike Day, who was the chief engineer. He was leaving because he'd been involved with Jerry Rafferty on that song, Baker Street. And he was the one who recorded After Tonight and Caught You in a Lie, right? Mike Day. He was a huge seven-foot-tall man. And he was leaving because Rafty had, you know, made some headway with Baker Street. So there was a gap at the studio for an engineer. And because I was always with Mike and interested to know how what was done there, I could actually do a session on my own. And I think the first session I did on my own was Laddie Sifri. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> like Lee Sifri had a session and I was the engineer. And, you know, that's how I met Janet Kay as well. Because um, D-Roy had a session and it was with Lloyd Parks and Sly Dunbar. They were in town with their group, We The People Band, to do a tour with Dennis Brown, right? And Delroy Witter, the guy who had a sound system called Success, and he also had the label D-Roy, he had started to record Janet. And he got her to sing, That's What Friends Are For. But after all, that's what friends are for. And I thought, hmm, this is a really interesting voice. And then I worked with her again. We went into the studio to do a recording of I Do Love You. Oh, yeah. I do love you. Yeah. yeah. And when it was like, woo yes, I do. I thought, hey, this young lady can sing. So when she said to me, look, if there's anything, you you know, you've got any backing vocals or anything for me to do, here's my number. I went, backing vocals? I want you to sing the lead on this tune. And I leapt on the piano and I played it to her. And then I taught her the song piece by piece by piece. And then by the time it was ready, what had happened was that I'd gone into the studio with Drummy Zeb and told him that I wanted this particular drum pattern because I had that drum pattern running around in my brain. And I was thinking, this is going to be the pattern that's going to knock Slide Dunbar off of the top reggae drummer, you know, because I realised that whenever reggae went into a new gear, it was because of something in the rhythm pattern. So I thought, ah, if I change the drum pattern and do some fantastic drum pattern that not many drummers are going to know how to play, and it looks as though it's fake, but it's actually an act of juggling between the hi-hats and the snare and the kick. And then on the kick drum, I'm doing disco. Boop, 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 boop. And then on the hi-hat, I'm doing calypso. You know, what the calypso boys do but with a difference where I'm rolling the hi-hat in the bell. Of the bell of the hi-hat, I'm going... And the offbeat on the snare is strictly Afrobeat. You know, that flick off the... That's me kind of paying respect to fellow Houthi, who not long been working with, too. And so I came up with this pattern, and I tried to find a drummer who could play it for three minutes and steady. And I tried Jabani, but he was bashing the hi-hat rather harsh. He was hitting him. And not like the soccer players. He was doing the Jamaican number in it. And Drummy Zed, being kind of Grenadian, understood soccer because he was the drummer of the Metronome All-Stars before he was a member of ASWAT. And at that time, my sound system was the resident sound in the Metro. So I saw them every week, you know, and they became followers of my sound. So when I said to him, come here, Drummy, I want you to play, because I, I was noticing him coming up through the ranks and being a formidable drummer. Yeah. And I thought, I can give him this secret and he will unfold it for me. And he did admirably. I mean, you know, especially uh, towards the end where it goes, to play your silly he rolled like Phil Collins or someone, you know. It wasn't a reggae. It wasn't bang, 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 bang. It wasn't that. He went... And it was definitely kind of a rock feeling there or a big, I don't know, all together now, Beatles, you know, that kind London. of feeling. It's London. It's the sound of London. Yes. I mean, I remember him, actually, when he was in Delroy Washington's band, the Mighty Diamonds with Bunny McKenzie on bass, because I was very close yeah. friends with Bunny's cousin, so went down to hear them. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, sticking with Silly Games for a second, 
how do you feel about the life of that song in the world? Because it's close to something like the national anthem of Black Britain. You know that, don't you? I mean, yeah, I know. And in fact, a young lady came out of the audience in a gig I did in Birmingham once and said to me, you know, we sing that at Birmingham City Football Club. And I think it's the female leg of that club that sings that. Yeah, because their female team is quite strong, you know, and they sing silly games. And I was like, wow, if your song has reached the terraces, <laughs> you can say you've made it. Well, I could talk to you all day, Dennis, as you know, but I think that's a really nice place to end. I mean, maybe in the future we can do a bit more of this because I think we can't blame the young people for not knowing the history if we don't actually tell we them. We don't tell them, that's yeah. true. I so, mean, you know, when Steve said to me the other day, what's your connection with Afrobeat? And I said, well, when I went to Amsterdam, I was entrusted with recording Fela Kuti Movement of the People live in Amsterdam. And whilst I was set the equipment up and recording, the lighting engineer was being a pain because there were some of his lights that were not sufficiently earthed that were making the PA system, you know, go. And then when we took the tapes back to London, to my Studio 80 studio, when we got there, a fella said, is this your studio? I went, yeah. He went, is it your own studio? Okay. Yeah. He went, okay, let's go. Because he had never worked in a studio owned by a black person or controlled by someone black. Anyway, when we got back to the studio after recording in Amsterdam, I couldn't filter the bass channel, you know, the noise. I've used noise gates and everything, and everything shut down. And then he was so furious, and I took the bass up, and I said, look, I'll, I'll replay that bass anyway. You play the bass? And I'm going, well, I've done it before. <laughs> and I plugged the bass in and replayed the whole bass line from top to bottom, and he... he fellow was he was laughing he was like yeah great fantastic thank you thank you thank you you know this means you're gonna have to come to Nigeria with me oh my god here we go and he brought me a passport a Nigerian passport with my photo and I was going I'm not going anywhere on that <laughs> and so when the record came out it had live in Amsterdam sound engineer Dennis Bovell and then at the bottom it had bass Dennis Bovell people going hang on did you play bass from the console? This is a live recording. I had to explain, no, the bass is actually an overtub because the band had already gone back to Nigeria. And if I hadn't have done that, that recording would have been wasted, you know, and he knew that. So from there on, he was like, I'm going to the studio. Dennis, let's go. We made quite a lot of recordings, including Army Arrangement, which is the one that Bill Laswell and Sly Dunbar changed from Afrobeat to disco. And when they did that, they wanted me to come with them, right? And I was going, no, I'm not. And I went away with Linton doing something else. I said, trust me, fella is not going to like that. And then Pascal Ambert sneaked a tape recorder into the prison where they went and presented that to fella. And after three notes, he was going, mother, who the, what they did, I don't want him. And Bernie Worrell had played some kind of kind of Booker T organ solo, and he raised the solo that Fella had played that was positively Dr. Fives, you know. Fella's um, solo made your hair on your hands stand. You know, it was army arrangement. You go, mathematician put them together, army arrangement. One answer, you go get army arrangement. You know, the rawness of it. And Fella just was like, no, I don't want to hear that. 
take it away. And then when he came out of jail, he released the one that him and I did in Studio 80. And one of my favorite songs was Teacher, Don't Teach Me Nonsense. Remember that one. Yeah, oh man, fellow was uh and you know, of course, Dele, the keyboard player, Sosumi, he was only a young boy of about 15 or 16, and he was a pianist, you know, because him and Femi are like real tight. Fellow's his godfather. And you can see with his Afrobeat compositions now how inside the uh, what's fellas camp called? Shrine. Oh, how enshrined he was. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you for that one. Dennis. Thank you very, very much for giving me your time this morning. And My I, pleasure. I mean, this uh, idea of wanting to make the music that you've created have a global life, a planetary yeah. life, that is an amazing thing. Thank you. Bless you. Bless you for that. Love to the family. And to yours. All right, man. Take care. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women Centre, Find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at ucl underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.